Cleves, Chapter 8 came from London a few weeks later. Thomas Cromwell, once the greatest in the land except for the king, had been executed. He had been kept busy in the weeks before his execution, preparing the grounds for the annulment of the king's marriage to Anne. But once that was complete, he was sent to his death. I heard he had begged the king for mercy, but none was forthcoming. He'd been stripped of all of his titles, much to the relish of his aristocratic rivals. He was killed at Tower Hill in front of an excitable crowd. My old friend Sir Thomas Wyatt was there. He owed Cromwell his life in the wake of the Anne Boleyn trial when he might have gone the way of other men, but he was unable to perform the same service for his mentor. I heard that he had wept as his old friend prayed, so much that Cromwell had turned to him and kissed him. Farewell, Wyatt, he'd said, and then, gentle Wyatt, pray for me. Whereupon Wyatt had stifled his tears and embraced his old friend. Apparently it took the executioner several tries to sever his neck, He always was built like a bull. He was one of those men whose head and neck formed one solid and threatening whole. I was not surprised to learn that the executioner had faltered in his duty. What did unsettle me was the great outburst of grief I felt at his death. I remembered the first time we had met at the field of cloth of gold when he was an up-and-coming lawyer and merchant and Will was his page. He had been kind to Will and me, allowing us to live in his house at Austin Friars. In those days, it was a house that was always warm and welcoming, with a fire always blazing in the hearth, good food and Italian wines at dinner. But I couldn't forget that he had threatened me. He knew that I was the daughter of Queen Catherine and King Henry, left for dead at birth. He never wanted that secret to come out, and he was angered by my loyalty to the old queen. But then he had always been kind to Will, even though the last work he had put his way had proved so disastrous for us. He had been a part of our lives for many years, and now he was gone. I could not join in the jollity of Anne's chamber on that day. I excused myself and went outside to be alone. That summer was the hottest in living memory. I could feel the sweat in my hair under my hood and running down my face. Or was it tears? A bit of both, I thought. My belly felt hard, but it was smaller than it had been with you two earlier children. I went to the kitchen garden 
and crouched in the shadow of the wall. I did not know whether to rejoice or weep. According to Seymour, once the Cromwell business was out of the way, it would be easy to release Will without fanfare. But then, Seymour had no investment in protecting Will. I feared that my beloved boy would continue to languish in the tower, and I could not think of anything I could do for him. I prayed briefly and then got up. Praying is a good idea, but on its own it achieved nothing. I had to get back to the Queen's chamber and keep watching and listening. Only by being near the people in power could I hope to have any influence over Will's fate. I got back to find the women in a merry mood. The King had sent a message to say he would dine with Anne on the following day. There was even an unrealistic hope that maybe the last few weeks just hadn't happened and that Henry was coming to reclaim Anne as his bride. Anne herself was not immune. His Majesty says he wants to have an intimate dinner without all of the court present, she remarked. I wonder why he wants to be alone with me. Has he maybe changed his mind? I must consult with the Duchess as to which gown is the most flattering. God bless her. She had little sense of style, but she was an eager pupil and had adopted many of the fashions of the English court. You must play, Cat. We don't want a whole troop of musicians. And fine, we must have the best wine in the cellar for the king. French, I think, she made a face. That is his favourite, I remember. Anne asked me to play King Henry's compositions that evening and she instructed the cook to prepare each of his favourite dishes. A swan was to be procured and roasted. Venison pies, rabbit pies, roasted larks, spiced fruits from France, served with a creamy custard. She consulted with Catherine as to what she should wear. It had been at least a month since she had seen the king, and she hoped that he might see her with fresh eyes. The rushes were freshened with fresh herbs, chamomile, rosemary and mint. Every platter and goblet was polished until it shone and fresh beeswax candles were brought in. Anne wanted to make sure that when Henry saw her, she would be shown in the most flattering light possible. He arrived in the late afternoon, riding up to the gate, followed by a few gentlemen. As she heard their horses' hooves, Anne stood up and braced herself to meet him. She heard footsteps running up the stairs and she fixed a smile on her face. She was wearing a blue silk gown which showed up the bright blue of her eyes. Sapphires were at her throat and her French hood was lined with pure white pearls. She looked every inch a queen. The doors opened and the king was announced. He almost ran inside as Anne and the rest of her household dropped deep curtsies and bows. He went to her, pulled her up and kissed her hand. 
My dearest sister, I'm delighted to see you again. You look well indeed. He made a small bow to her. Please, your majesty, be seated, Anne said, waving to an ornate chair. She gestured to me to start playing, and a manservant entered with wine and spiced nuts for the king and his men. The German ladies were gathered in a flock behind their mistress, seemingly afraid to mix with the king's men. But Henry and Anne were oblivious to their surroundings. To my surprise, they were talking animatedly to each other. Your gown suits you well, he said. It shows off your slender waist. Have you lost a little weight, my dear? She had, indeed, with all the fear and worrying. Instead of merely looking large, her figure looked long and elegant. Her hands sparkled with jewelled rings, diamonds, rubies and sapphires. Her English was also much improved. She learnt more every day. Do you remember that awful gown I wore when I first met you? She laughed as she said this. He looked surprised that she was willing to make fun of herself and then chuckled loudly. Indeed, my lady, you were armoured like a castle under siege. No man could breach your defences. I could see that this caused her to think. I guessed she was wondering whether given a more relaxed form of dress and a more intimate atmosphere, he might indeed feel able to have intercourse with her and re-enter the marriage. Smiling, she led him into her privy chamber. We are dining together in here, sire, she said. Our attendants may wait outside. We will just have my musician. For a moment, King Henry looked intently at me. Do I know her? She looks familiar to me. I was not surprised by this. I'd played many times in front of him before. But for him, musicians and servants just merged into the background. We were less remarkable than his horses or even his dogs. She walked in the court before your grace. I have asked her to play your compositions today to entertain us both with sweet music. He looked pleased and waved his hand. Play, girl, play. I set a merry pace while the couple bent their heads together to chat. Every now and then, Henry would laugh loudly while Anne smiled at him contentedly. To tell you the truth, madam, you were not so entertaining when you first came to my court. Ah, but your majesty, I did not speak English and you did not speak German. How could we entertain each other in an easy way? He looked thoughtful. Hmm, so are you telling me that you were always so clever and beautiful? I do not believe it. You're a different woman today. Anne blushed and replied softly. Yes, indeed, I am the same. But I have learnt much in the last few months. I hope that means that I please you better. You please me well indeed, Anne. This is a fine meal, he said, 
picking delicately at a roasted lark on his plate. Her eyes burned. Your Majesty, you do me great honour by visiting me today. I hope that you will come again very soon. Of course, madam, I intend to. I would like for you to meet my wife as soon as possible. Anne slowly laid down a piece of meat she had been eating and wiped her hand on her napkin. For a moment, both were absolutely silent. Your wife, sire? He blustered a reply. Yes, madam, I came to tell you I have married. As my sister, I wanted you to be the first to know. He smiled broadly across the table at her, as if he was doing her a special favour. Anne's shoulders sagged. She spoke hesitantly. My felicitations, Your Majesty. May I ask who you have wed? To whom shall I give my loyalty as Queen? Why, Lady Catherine Howard, of course. The King's voice was amused. You must have noticed that I was considering her as a wife. Of course, I could not do anything until I was assured our union could be annulled. But thanks to you, I became free. And so I married her. My rose without a thorn. I cannot wait for you to meet her in her new role. I know you'll be impressed. You're going to love each other. Anne looked down at her plate and pushed it away. Then she took a sip of wine and lifted her head. Indeed, sire, I know Sir Queen already, and I am certain she will please you greatly in the performance of her role. She said this without a hint of irony, and knowing her straightforwardness, I believe she meant it. The king thumped the table and called for me to play a dance. I struck up a galliard. He jumped up from his seat, pulled his ex-wife from hers and proceeded to lead her in the dance. Poor girl, never a dancer, she struggled to keep time, as though she kept a smile pasted onto her face. Now my Catherine is a better dancer than you, Anne. I will have to get her to tutor you. Anne went red and bowed her head. I could barely hear her as she whispered, Thank you, sire. I shall be pleased to have such an eminent teacher. The king smiled and patted her on the arm. I must be going now. Can't keep Catherine waiting. I'll send for you to join us at court very shortly, dear sister. Anne smiled wanly and curtsied to him as he strode out, calling his gentlemen to join him. Later, in her privy chamber, the tears flowed. He is humiliating me by expecting me to curtsy to this girl. What does he see in her? A mistress, yes, but a queen? The Duchess of Suffolk hurried to soothe her. Your Grace, I do not think he means to do that. He's a man, and men are not sensitive to women's feelings. He believes he's doing you a great honour by encouraging a friendship between you and her. He is making good his promise to treat you as his sister. Anne screamed out in frustration. 
but I was bred to be a royal lady. You know how the Londoners have praised me for my poise and queenliness. You know how they cheered me. But this girl, what does he know of her? She is fresh and new, no doubt. But how was she brought up? Your Grace, she was brought up by the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, one of the greatest ladies in the land, said Catherine. She is young, yes, but I think she will learn. Anne's face crumpled. I do not wish to curtsy to her, this baby from the nursery. I do not wish to be taught how to dance by her. I do not wish to carry her train, be godmother to her babies. It is like poison to me. She burst into tumultuous crying. Catherine, Duchess of Suffolk, paused and laid a hand on Anne's back. Then she sighed and moved away, judging that privacy might help this storm pass. The problem was I was still playing. I could not stop in the middle of my piece without permission. I could not speak, so I played on, trying to render the music as soothing as possible. Anne held up her hand. Enough now. I have had my fill of music. I put my lute down and turned to her. Shall I go, Your Grace? She looked at me, her blue eyes transparent with tears. Go? No. Stay. I want to talk. Your Grace, I'm just a musician. Shall I call your ladies? She was insistent. No, it is you that I wish to talk to. You served all of the past queens, did you not? Yes, I did, I said softly. How did they react when he took another? Were they angry? Oh, yes, my lady, they were angry, but they behaved very differently. How so? Queen Catherine of Aragon was icy cool. There were no arguments, no fights, but she made it plain that she despised Anne Boleyn. She never admitted that Anne was queen, not ever. And what of Anne Boleyn when the king was courting Jane Seymour? Ah, She shouted, she screamed, she fought, she ranted and raved at the king. But that was her undoing. I said sadly. So, which queen should I emulate? Should I be cold or fiery? I was surprised that Anne asked this, but I have, as I have said, daughter, she was a straightforward girl who genuinely wanted advice. Your Grace, I loved both queens, but neither of them acted wisely. One was driven by conviction, the other by jealousy. I do not wish to be impertinent, but I would recommend a different path to you. Anne rub rubbed at her eyes with her hands. You are not being impertinent. Tell me, tell me. I have no one to advise me honestly. Even Catherine has her position at court to think about. You have nothing to lose. Tell me, Cat, what should I do? Your Grace... You should be cunning. Make friends with the new queen and flatter the king. He has given you more already than he gave them. 
Let him feel your admiration, your loyalty and your love. Anne made a face, but then admitted, You speak sense, Cat, I can see. But if I accept her, do I not block any further possibility that he may change his mind? I laughed out loud at this, and I was glad to see that she joined in. The king will change his mind if he wishes, no matter what blocks are in place. By accepting her, you are proving what a dignified, kind and wise woman you are. When he gets tired of her, he will remember that. You mean he may come back? The hope sprang into her voice. I don't know, I had to reply, but I do know that if you are hostile towards her, then you will never see him again. I was glad to leave that night and get to the peace of the maid's dormitory. Since Cromwell had been executed, I had not seen Edward Seymour. I needed to ask him about Will. When would it be safe to ask the king to pardon him? How long must he stay in that dank, dank cell in the tower? I was tortured by the thought of him in there on his own. And then there were you children. How I missed you all. I missed your playing, your arguments and your sweet, silly voices. I missed holding you on my lap, daughter, and singing with you. I missed Roger's face with his gummy smile. I was now about halfway through my pregnancy, and I hadn't even thought of where I would give birth. My baby kicked half-heartedly, as if he didn't want to be bothered. I decided I must speak with Edward Seymour soon, but now we were at Richmond, it was impossible to get to him. I knew I would have to wait until Anne was invited to meet with the new Queen Catherine and go as one of her party. Like Anne, I was counting the days until we could go back to London. The days passed and there was no word from the King. Anne pined and closeted herself with her German ladies, ignoring me and Catherine, the Duchess of Suffolk. There was some light relief when the cloth merchant arrived with many bolts of silk for her to see. Emerald green, sky blue, crimson, gold and deep, deep black. We spent a happy afternoon trying different colours against ourselves. Anne's announcement that the ladies in her household could each have a new gown made was greeted with delight. The German ladies clucked. Das ist gut, mein Gott. Ich mag das blau. I picked the black silk. I felt I was in mourning for Will, my husband, and our life together. Anne insisted, though, that I have a red silk petticoat. I have it to this day, daughter. Indeed, you have worn it sometimes, I remember. Those English servants who remained at Richmond were told that they would be returning to court to serve the new queen. Anne wasn't happy about it, but she told me triumphantly that they couldn't take me as I was in her personal employ. I was relieved. I did not want to be back at court with its intrigues and dangers. Catherine, Duchess of Suffolk, was called back and left with many protestations of friendship and loyalty. To be fair to her, she and Anne remained friends for life. I found the new servants a little rough and ready. They had been junior members of the court and did not understand the etiquette as I did. But they were willing to please and after a few weeks 
were happy to be serving such a kind mistress. Anne's state was not as grand as it was, but it was more relaxed and friendly. There was one new servant, a steward called Carew, whom Anne was convinced was a spy. He kept a check on her letters from her family, something she found insulting. So she made a point of sending her letters on to the council with pointed comments made via the messengers. He never found anything wrong in Anne's communications with her family and after a while Anne simply ignored him. We spent the autumn walking in the park surrounding Richmond Palace, picking blackberries and sweet chestnuts. I found that Anne had lived in the countryside for some of her youth and she enjoyed being out in the crisp autumn air. It was her first English autumn and she took to the season with relish. But still, no word from the king. We heard rumours that he was obsessed with his new queen and that he was spending much of his time closeted with her. This gossip made Anne look very sad. But she would always collect herself and smile graciously at whoever had gifted her with the latest tittle-tattle. I started to wonder if I would ever get the chance to even see Will again, let alone get him released. I could not understand why he'd been overlooked. It was now a good three months since Cromwell had been executed, and still there was no word. I cried myself to sleep sometimes, in rage and frustration. It was hard to accept there was nothing I could do. And there was the business of the baby. I knew my time was coming, and I wanted to have the baby at home. I resolved that I should ask Anne for some time off. Your Grace, you may have noticed, my child is nearly due. I want to go to my family house to give birth. My children have not seen me for many months, Your Grace. I want to see them before the winter. Anne's face became at once sympathetic. My dear cat, I had forgotten. Of course you must go. I want you back, mind. Once the baby is born, you have two children. Is that right? Yes, Your Grace, a girl and a boy. Of course you must see them, and I wish you God's blessing in the birthing room. Tears came into her eyes. I had thought that it might be me by now, but still, God's blessings come in many ways. I will tell the pastry cooks to give you some sweetmeats for them. And so, a few days later, I took a skiff down into London, my bags loaded with treats and a couple of cloth horses which Anne had got her ladies to make. She waved me off gaily, though her face sank into sadness when she thought I wasn't looking. When I got to the door of our house, Tom opened it and swept me into his arms. Jane followed with you and Walter arguing behind her. What is it, Cat? Why are you here? Is everything well? Tom's voice was tense. I suddenly realised how difficult things must have been for him. His son in captivity, still in danger for his life. No wonder he looked older and his face more worn. I have no news. Nothing has changed with Will. I just wanted to see you all and give my children my blessing. 
Jane came forward and gave me a warm hug. They're fine and bonny children, mistress, and their mother's visit will make them even happier. She looked me up and down. Your time is near, mistress, is it not? Yes, I think maybe one or two weeks. I will stay until after the baby's born, and then I must get back. Despite my heaviness, I spent the next week playing with the children. I would make up stories about the two cloth horses, and you, my Alice, would pretend that your doll was the new baby. You and Walter got on well, just like a brother and sister, and Jane was as kind as a mother to you. Roger was learning to walk now and getting into everyone's way. I took you, Alice, and Walter down to walk by the river, pointing out all the barges and skiffs that made their way up and down the great river. Everyone travelled by river, from the royal family to the merchants to the working girls who went up west every night for custom. The path was muddy and it was hard to keep our footing. It was you, Alice, overcome with excitement at seeing the grand barge of the Duke of Suffolk, who slipped over and started to cry. Without thinking, I bent over to pick you up. You were a sturdy little girl and quite a weight. As I gathered you into my arms, I felt a sudden pain in my belly that made me catch my breath. I had to set you down while I composed myself, willing the pain to pass. You were crying, but I could not comfort you. Walter, who was a kind little boy, put his arm around you. Fortunately, we were nearly home, and I was able to stagger back, pausing every now and then when the pain swept me. Walter and you followed me, hand in hand. You were very good, children. When we got back, Jane took one look at me and told me to go to bed. She followed me quickly, having handed you children over to Tom. So it's your time, she said bluntly. Take off your robes and get into bed. The pains were coming frequently by then, and I had to breathe deeply through them. They're coming quickly, Jane. The baby's coming, I panted. We always forget how painful birthing is, daughter, for otherwise... Why would we have children after our first? I'll send for the midwife. Jane made for the door. No, I can't wait. Stay with me, Jane. She opened the door and called out. Tom, go for the midwife. Take the children with you. I heard swift footsteps and the children talking. Fortunately, the midwife did not live far and Tom would be back with her within the half hour. Jane came back lifted the sheets that covered me and put a towel under my bottom. I lay there with my knees outstretched while Jane kept one hand on my enormous belly. Every time it tensed, she would tell me to push. That's it, you're nearly there, mistress. Push now as hard as you can. I felt nothing except agony and there was no respite between the waves of pain. I found myself panicking, and started to scream. Oh, ah! Mistress, you must push now. Don't swear. Just when I tell you, push. I pushed hard against the agony. It seemed there was no end to the pain. 
At last, I felt something moving when I pushed, wet, slippery like an eel. Putting my head down on my chest, I strained downwards with all my might. It's coming, mistress. The baby's nearly here. I looked up at Jane, so engaged in the birth of a new human being, and I grasped her hand. She let me stay in that position. I thought it must have hurt her hand dreadfully. It's here! It's here! She called out as I finally pushed the baby out. She picked it up and held it to me. Mistress, you have a baby boy. Indeed, I could see it was a boy. He was long and slim, like his father, and his skin was milky white. Jane fell silent as I reached for him. His legs did not wave as she handed me him, and his body was only warm from me. His blue eyes were open, sightless. He was quite dead. The midwife arrived, bustling up the stairs cheerfully until she entered the chamber and saw what had happened. Poor little mite, I'll baptise him now, she said briskly, performing the ceremony which midwives were allowed to do when a baby is near death. He's left this world, poor soul, but I'm sure he lingered long enough to receive God's mercy, she said. He'll be in paradise this night. I held his little body close to me, kissing him and trying to hold his hand, which wouldn't curl around mine. He may yet live, I said, remembering that at my own birth I'd been left for dead, then miraculously been found to be living. No, mistress, he's gone. Let me have him now, said the midwife, holding out her arms. Let me hold him, keep him a little longer, I insisted. How could it be that this baby, who'd lived inside me for nearly nine months, had left me just at the moment of our meeting? His little face gave no clue. And so, Alice, we lost your brother. We called him Henry. He had the look of the king, my father. His wisps of red hair, his pink cupid's bow lips, and his long white hands. But we would never know him. And after that night, I was forced to accept that he had left me. I knew now what Queen Anne and Queen Catherine had felt when they had given birth to dead babies. You look at them and they are utterly beautiful, perfectly made. So you feel proud and then your grief overtakes you and you cry out, God made him perfect except for breath. Why was he not imperfect and breathing? Why did he not have a spotty mottled skin, but also a beating heart? Why was life so cruel? I wept when I remembered my mother's dead children and how she had prayed to meet with them again in paradise. Just because your child dies, it doesn't mean that you didn't have a child, a part of your flesh that grew inside you and loved you instinctively 
that you would have given your life for. And sometimes you wished you had died. But then you remember that, of course, Queen Jane had given her life for her son. And though he was alive, he would never know his mother. I prayed desperately that my little Henry would somehow know of my love for him. But at times I despaired. In the end, though, your other children call you and the needs of your family. You close the door on your baby and concentrate again on the world. It comforted me to think that my little Henry would be with his grandmother, Catherine of Aragon, in paradise. She would hold him and love him until I could. For now, I had to get back to Richmond Palace and work out how I could get Will released. There was a long road ahead.